to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, And as always, we like to talk about things related to emergency management, uh, disasters, business continuity, crisis management, resiliency, and anything that can be related to those subjects. I'd like to remind everyone, if there is a specific topic you'd like us to talk about on the show or have a, a specific guest, um, please feel free. Send me an email. Go to the homepage for the show on the Voice America site. There's a button. You can send me an email. I get all emails, and I do respond to everything. And we'll see about uh, finding someone to talk about your subject or see about you getting, uh, you know, um, being available to come on the show and talk about what you want to uh, convey. Um, of course, we're always open to advertising and sponsorships. So if you've got anything you want to get your product or your uh, service uh, mentioned on the air or talk about it on the air, please feel free. Let me know. Send me an email the same way. And today's show is brought to get, uh, brought to us by the uh, people at Stone Road Inc. and uh, at BoastAssessment.com, where you can do your self-assessments for your program and uh, track your pro- progress and find out uh, where you need to concentrate on. And that's BoastAssessment.com. Before we get started with today's show, I want to let everyone know that you may hear some uh, noises in the background here, uh, a lot of beeps, and that's because uh, last night where I am, we had a big snowstorm, and uh, of course, 10 minutes just before uh, we started to prepare for this uh, recording, uh, all the snow plows showed up around my house. So you may hear all of that uh, in, in the background here, and I apologize if it's a distraction, but unfortunately, there's nothing I can do about it, and uh, you know, you but you can take uh, pleasure in the thought knowing that as soon as this uh, show is over, I have to go outside and unbury my car. So in saying that, a lot of you know, especially those that uh, listen to more than uh, you know your fair share of episodes, you'll know that I'm an avid reader. And I like getting a lot of different books on uh, resiliency, crisis management, emergency management, etc., um, to enhance my own skills and knowledge and learn new perspectives on doing things and how to do things. You know, it makes me a stronger, a better person at what I do, um, but I always like to learn. And recently, I came across a book um, that I thought, you know what, this is uh, becoming quite uh, important, and I think I want to see if I can get the author on the show, and I was lucky enough to get that author. The book is Technology and Emergency Management, and I'm uh, honored today to have on the show Dr. John C. Pine, the author. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you. Even though it's a little chilly where I am in near Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, it's not as uh, chilly as in Toronto. Uh, no. Um, tomorrow, believe it or not, we're supposed to be reaching over minus 40 degrees. So wherever oh, you are, I, I'd much rather be where you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, John, before we get started, could you kind of uh, let our global listeners know a little bit about yourself, um, what you do, and how, how you uh, got into all this emergency management? Oh, I'd be realm? glad to. 
Um, I was a professor at Louisiana State University beginning in 1980 and spent 30 years in Baton Rouge. Um, I was a faculty member in the Department of Environmental Science. That's a multidisciplinary group. Um, I went to that department uh, in part because of my interest in hazards, um, um, both human-caused as well as natural hazards. And Louisiana sits on the Gulf Coast and is certainly exposed to many different... Uh, the only thing that I can't think they they get much of would be earthquakes, and that comes in the northern part. Um, after serving 30 years at LSU, I went to Appalachian State and ran a research institute uh, for the environment, energy, and economics for seven years, and then retired in January 2016. Uh, the book that you refer to, Technology and Emergency Management, was in process. Um, we were in the final edits about the time I retired, and so it came out a while later. But um, anyway, so I got involved in disasters. My background is in public administration and management, and I've taught with the business school both crisis management classes as well as emergency management classes. Um, I do legal research. Uh, that was part of my academic training, although I'm not an attorney. And FEMA asked me to look specifically at um, how local governments might be uh, sued, uh, personal injury type suits, uh, civil negligence types of claims, and then other agencies um, wanted to know of the same dynamics, NOAA and NASA, um, uh, U.S. Forest Service. There, there were numerous agencies that wanted uh, to have outside consult on how to deal with these disasters, how to deal in disasters with uh, claims of negligence against government officials, specifically at the local government level. And I did that for many years and then moved to a broader look at emergency management, my background being more management-oriented, was really how agencies deal with, uh, with crisis. And so it, it, it led beyond, well beyond legal issues. And so for uh, numerous years at LSU, I was directed an undergraduate and graduate program in disaster science. We didn't call it emergency management. We felt that the expertise on the campus, which was uh, rather amazing, um, was was more suited to the science behind it than the traditional approach of, of emergency management. And that program continues today in the department, uh, operated from the Department of Geography and Anthropology. Well, great. I'm I'm honored to have you on the show, especially since you're retired. So you know, I'm uh, happy that uh, you found some time in your hopefully downtime and relaxing period to uh, share some time with us. Well, it's wonderful. Um, I do want to ask one question right up front. In the industry, you know, emergency management, disaster, business continuity, everything, we have a struggle with terminology. So when you say emergency management, what does that really mean? Well, um, I'm influenced by the literature um, that has been in practice, particularly in the public sector, of maybe for the last 40, 50 years. And it would be more of the conscious planning, response, recovery, and mitigation of, of disasters. And that would be the, ag the agency-specific, more FEMA, but I think it goes pretty well worldwide 
agencies looking at this, um, I find that these functions of the planning, response, recovery, and mitigation are very distinct, and we see them in timelines. Um, the timing for planning um, and what in the private sector might be more business continuity and risk management, um, crisis management, that seems to be the longest period where we spend extensive periods in uh, coming up with emergency operation procedures, making connections with collaborations, uh, particularly in the public sector. You see these uh, building collaborations at the local and state and national level that would probably surprise many listeners is just how much time that it takes to do that. And there's a real distinct uh, time period where we move from planning to operations. And what you're seeing uh, is an emergency, but it's, it's not a disaster in, in Canada today and in much of the U.S., unless it uh, has an impact on many public services and agencies that interfere with their ongoing activities, snowplows, um, you hear them, but that, that mm-hmm. doesn't create a disaster at all. And then when you move from, from the response into the recovery, there's a real time period that separates those two functions. So we see these things. Um, I, I, I do look at it at four separate functions that I think apply across the board in both the public-private uh, sector. And uh, maybe the hardest one is the concept of mitigation, and uh, where you are looking forward and trying to reduce the adverse impacts of disasters on your operations um, and, and keep it from occurring. So it, it's, it's something that I think is more of a, you'll see this throughout the literature. Um, I'm not, I don't know that it would vary that much in the uh, private sector, but, um, but even in, in risk, risk management and you you see these these very separate functions in some way in in almost any operation. It, it's kind of like that um, is it Deming uh, plan do check act right, mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. but for disasters. Now, when we talk disasters, are we talking uh, natural or man made? Uh, all matter. of the above. <laughs> and, <laughs> all of the. Uh, it, okay. it is so interesting. Um, <laughs> I feel like I got a real. Uh, exposure to not only natural disasters in coastal U.S. Uh, with hurricanes and floods, um, but also with so many private industry collaborators in South Louisiana and the Gulf Coast, you have chemical plants and production facilities that are enormous. And so you have uh, transportation-related spills, which would be we associate with human calls, not with uh, man-made kinds of things. So let's move into the the, uh, the main topic here, your book. How is technology changing all of that? How is it you know, for the good and you know for the negative? How is technology impacting or changing emergency management today? Well, I think that um, we definitely see um, a positive influence uh, of technology the pace of it is just extraordinary. Uh, seeing in the newspapers where you have um, technology conferences, um, it, it is is totally changing from 
what it might have been five years ago or, or ten years ago. Actually, this book was initiated by FEMA, and I think they saw that technology was something that could be positive um, impacted on emergency management in the in the U.S. and internationally because they they do have a foothold throughout the world. Um, it was a class that they wanted created, and they approached me of creating this class through the Emergency Management Institute in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And so I, over the years, I'd done several classes for them. Um, this was one that was a little bit unexpected. Uh, the, the class was developed, uh, approved by their staff, and then put on the web for downloading to colleges and universities and schools of all types. And in fact, that class is probably still offered um, on the web. Uh, John Wiley and Sons approached me to move it into a text, which I did, and then when they asked to do a second edition, um, we, I incorporated more colleagues that had expertise, in, uh, and so I, I drew on um, many other people to help me. I think there are 12, 11, 12 chapters, and I ended up doing half of them on the second revision. Um, Whereas in initially I did it, in, um, I want to comment on your your note, your question about how we how it's changed and things, and I think one of the areas where we've seen more challenges but more contributions is in the area of social media, and when you have a natural event, you have capacity of citizens to share photos and comments to businesses as well as to news, and you see this more and more to where they are sharing what they're seeing. Um, this is something that it, it poses a question to businesses as well as communities of how we harness this, um, this capacity of citizens to have input and in helping us know what's going on in, in the community during a Disaster. So it has that has really expanded. Um, the technology becomes easier and easier. The photo sharing, videos, uh, it's just amazing. And um, so you can choose whether that's positive or negative. I think most people, once they realize what they can harness, they um, they pull in the eyes and ears of people in their uh, community to uh, to do that. Plus, it's all cheaper and easier. Um, the explosion of of technology may pose problems to the people and how you keep up, but um, it's just amazing to see how people can be creative and assist in some way in our response and recovery, particularly in uh, in local communities. I guess that poses the question with with social media because we see things you know that aren't always so. Positive, I guess you could say, you know, on news reports and things like that, that the wrong information uh, being disseminated. I mm-hmm. guess you know, that can happen with emergency management too. Like the wrong information can be sent sent around, right? Like I guess that could be part of the negative. Yeah, and I think it poses a challenge for any of us: is don't overreact and try to understand how this is being shared with either your community or with uh, the press or with with businesses and how to deal with it. 
Um, one of the things, that I, the question about the emerging technologies, we've seen drones. And uh, drones, the first time I saw one, it was a small aircraft. And one of my colleagues was using it to video, and he used tape video of rice fields. And he flew it over it, and it was, I don't think it was geospatial, but um, he just had a gasoline-powered small aircraft that he flew over rice fields in, uh, in coastal uh, Gulf Coast. And then years later, we see these things that are battery-powered with micro uh, cameras that are geospatially oriented and have high-resolution imagery that can transfer this back to the ground um, instantaneously. And um, it, that is just an incredible thing that has occurred. It, talk about give us eyes and ears uh, in, a, in a disaster. But then you also see in the news where aircraft uh, have avoided drones at major international airports, whether it be in mm-hmm. yes. Europe or, or the U.S. And so here you get both sides of the issue again of how we manage this resource and somehow how to chart it and capture it for our positive use. Well, I'm glad you mentioned drones because that was actually going to be my next question. <laughs> because really a lot of people still see drones as, uh, you know, toys. I, I have a friend who uh, has a drone uh, up at the cottage and, you know, we were seeing all these images of the cottage and the lake and, you know, all the the trees and the scenery around it. And yet at the same time, and you just mentioned that they can be used in emergencies to help people. Yeah. It, it's interesting uh, when... We be, in my department at Appalachian State University in North Carolina, we uh, purchased uh, quite a few drones, and we had some resources we could pull in. Those drones were about $5,000 apiece, which included all the technology to the video, um, high-resolution video um, technology. The legislature uh, stepped their foot in there and said, no applications of drones at university research operations or on the campus uh, because they want to put a hold on it. Uh, they later came up with guidelines of how to deal with this, but um, it is just a tremendous resource for people who want to, want to understand the environment in some way. Uh, the notion of having remote sensing, uh, those drones can carry an amazing array of technology that may have been um, uh, centered on aircraft or helicopters or even satellites in the past, and today mm-hmm. you can you can operationalize it at a much smaller scale uh, using uh, the drone. So it's you're, we will see more and more of this technology in the future. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I remember interviewing uh, Professor Mean Chitri from um, Nepal, who said that uh, drones were able to be used after the Nepal earthquake to find out where, you know, they needed to concentrate some of their key resources, where mm-hmm. helicopters, you know, couldn't go because there wasn't enough of them. So yeah. they had drones uh, going out and uh, finding, you know, that we need to go here. This is where we need to concentrate on to help with that. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, and I think if you can look at it, it, it with the first time that I saw an aircraft doing this, it was recorded in the plane lands and uh, you get your your data, whereas now it can be transferred 
electronically, uh, remotely to you, uh, like mm-hmm. a Bluetooth or something, as long as it's not too far away. But uh, right. it's, it's amazing, too. I think we'll see more and more of this uh, type of technology used in disaster uh, response and recovery. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Dr. John Pine, author of Technology and Emergency Management. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Dr. John Pine, author of Technology and Emergency Management. Um, great first segment uh, there, John. Um, I'm wondering if we can talk about, and you actually hinted at this in the first segment, geospatial technologies. What is that? Okay. Um, when I initially did the, the text and I wrote all the, the chapters, when I got to the second edition, I asked two colleagues who had worked with me at Louisiana State University and then moved on. It was a couple, um, Andrew and Jackie Curtis. They are now professors of geography at Kent State University, and they use the term geospatial technologies. And when we think of um, geographic information systems, GIS, 
that is a fairly limited um, scope of what a technology is available um, to business as well as government jurisdictions. In fact, you would probably be surprised at the extent of GIS uh, today in operations um, in our public sector as well as in, in business. They looked at it beyond that. Uh, there are many other forms of technology that have geospatial tools that can link data in different forms to uh, places on Earth. And so when they use GIS, they distinguish that in terms of uh, geographical information systems, which tend to be more computer-oriented and graphic and, and screen-related, where we have data somehow linked to places on Earth on a map. Geospatial technologies is broader. And when Jackie and uh, her husband, Andrew, and I first collaborated, it was following uh, Hurricane Katrina. And we were doing uh, applications of geospatial technologies um, under the sponsorship of FEMA in New Orleans during the response as well as the recovery. Um, one of the occasions that we did, we mounted cameras, um, four cameras on the top of my uh, vehicle and drove in areas of New Orleans recording um, the, vi the video. And this video was linked to um, mapping systems and really was showing a different kind of perspective. And then we did this. We drove these neighborhoods over a period of months to show the change that was occurring. Another example was uh, they, FEMA deployed a group of people walking on foot that took photos of um, buildings, uh, predominantly residential structures, and then filled out a form that would, in a, in a sense, be an initial damage assessment of this. And it was all geospatially oriented. The, the databases included a video shot of the, or an image of the structure, usually from the street or from the side, um, and it was all linked to that record as well as to a point on the map. But it opens up a whole array of remote sensing um, capabilities that are linked to mapping. And, uh, and then the analysis of this, uh, whether it's video or an image, that can allow us to look at things and analyze issues um, from a far more than just a traditional geographic information system that may be a series of maps with data linked to that map. Um, they, uh, they, I attribute this, the use of this term to my former colleagues who uh, have continued to do this um, in all different forms of disasters from earthquakes in California where they lived for a while and wildfire, flat, wildfires um, and trying to understand and model these uh, initiatives to, to, to understand them in, in different ways. So you're, you're merging uh, related technologies to the mapping systems, and, they, and given that it does have geospatial um, dimensions, they, they use the term in a broader sense. So would you use this kind of technology 
to identify risks, or would you be using it when something occurs? Both. And um, so, in a sense, you can model um, I serve on a board um, at the University of North Carolina where they specialize in hurricane modeling. And this is a very high resolution um, hurricane modeling uh, that uh, tracks storms well out uh, uh, in sea and then can predict uh, the not only the wind but the storm surge and the impacts that um, the storms can have on both the Gulf of Mexico and the eastern United States. And uh, that model is called ADCIRC. Um, it runs on a supercomputer, so you can see that it's a pretty high, um, high dimension. And so you, you can use that both in planning as well as in emergency response. And I may have a chance to speak more about how they've used some of those kinds of technologies as we talk today. Interesting. You made a comment about remote sensing. Um, so, and I know in your book you have a, a chapter on this, so I'm going to jump there. Uh, what is direct and remote sensing systems then? Well, um, when you have remote sensors, you are not in physical contact with the object you're trying to understand. Um, if you're doing, um, if you're direct sensing, it might be the temperature of the water or the temperature of the air that you're in direct contact with. And so we have sensors in uh, streams and rivers throughout the United States that the U.S. Geological Survey and other federal agencies uh, do. And a lot of times those are measuring the velocity of the water, um, the, the temperature, uh, some of the other characteristics of this, and it's in direct contact. So the stream gauge is measuring it directly. Um, whereas when you have uh, a satellite that is measuring clouds and photoing uh, a cloud, um, create a photo of a, of a cloud, it's not in direct contact with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's measuring something from afar. So that's the really the, the difference in... And what we're doing, and um, when we have weather stations, the weather station has a sensor that is measuring the temperature of the air and other dynamics, typically directly, and then transferring that data back to um, in some way. Whereas uh, remote sensing, you're able to measure something, and it's surprising what our satellites are doing today. Uh, in helping us understand weather patterns, and it's not touching it. It's, it's definitely measuring it and uh, analyzing the data from far. And I guess that's where we get our, um, you know, the weather network and AccuWeather and things like that, telling us, you know, business continuity, people in disaster, people, you know, prepare for, well, like I had last night, a big snowstorm, right? Yeah, yeah. Ah. and in, in many respects, they have stations throughout the world where they can measure, and then if they want to um, know the temperature in a specific location where you happen to be standing, they, um, AccuWeather and, and there are others that uh, are telling you the temperature of your street address, well, they don't have a sensor there. They're approximating um, 
what the temperature and the et cetera is and at that location, but it was initially from a direct sensor kind of thing. It's amazing what um, our agencies have done with the technology today to better understand what's going on in the physical world and how it might impact us. So we, we talked about drones earlier. Would drones be able to do the same thing? Because obviously they, we can use drones to find out where we need to focus our resources, you know, send them here, send them there. But can they also do sensors? You know, can yes. they both be and direct and remote? Just as a, uh, a satellite can, um, for a long-term period, um, have something that either is at a fixed rotation around the uh, around the Earth, or or, or has a, a has a path that it 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 goes. A drone just wouldn't be as high up, and so it can do many of the things that the satellites have done. Um, and helped us to understand, and now we have a technology that can be deployed to go and get a reading for what is in the air at a specific time. It may be a chemical release, um, as well as what is going on um, in an extreme event, maybe a, an earthquake where you want to do some analysis, and and we can look below, below the surface and get an idea of some things, and that drone could have that sensor on it to help us uh, identify uh, a target that we want to either respond to or uh, rescue or something like that. Well, actually, you just mentioned an interesting point. So drones and what they're able to do, they're not just in the air. They actually can be underwater as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So... You mentioned a couple of examples in your book um, where technology can almost, I guess you can say, predict disasters. And you mentioned a, a project um, or a program, I guess, uh, that went by the acronyms of SLOSH and mm-hmm. ALOHA. Can you yeah. kind of give us an example then? You know, we'll, we'll look at SLOSH first. Okay. Well, SLOSH would be the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center have a a suite of uh, models that when there is a hurricane in an area where they want to analyze them, of course, it could be worldwide. They don't call them hurricanes in Asia, but um, it's the mm-hmm. same dynamic. And uh, so we have models that allow us to uh, understand the direction and the impact and timelines. Uh, Slosh is an older model than the one I referred to as ADSERC, um, and it's been run by the National Hurricane Center and NOAA worldwide uh, for years and years and years. Um, they use these in specific incidents, but they also run scenarios um, to where they might have data that they run, and they will help uh, governmental jurisdictions both nationally and state and local, to understand the dynamics of what can happen in a severe storm like this. Um, during an event, it's not uncommon that um, as part of the operation that they run, they're using real-time data that's collected from the, by NOAA and um, putting that in the models, and they run repeatedly uh, to put out uh, information 
maybe every six hours or three hours, depending on um, the severity of the storm and how close it is to landforms. So um, one of the things these agencies do is they actually go and measure what actually happened when, say, a hurricane hit a coastal community. And they actually measure the storm surge, they measure the wind velocity, and uh, what actually happened to structures. And then they can tweak the models ever so slightly to, to res- help resolve some of, some of this. Um, for our models today, the biggest change that has been occurring, and I would say this is something that's been happening over time, is that we get better and better data. And either we have uh, more accurate and higher resolution uh, data about the earth and the waves and temperatures and things like that. So as our capacity to measure the environment increases, it influences these models. And so the slosh model or other hurricane storm uh, flooding models that are used today um, those models are constantly being adapted, uh, both from experience and measuring how accurate we were in predicting a physical dynamic, or by having input data that maybe it's a new satellite that allows us to measure something more accurately. Um, and you get data sets that are, have increased resolution that influence the uh, the capacity of it to give us a, an, a, a more accurate prediction of what's, what's going to happen. So slosh is just a hurricane type. It's not a flood model. Um, there are other models that do inland flooding or riverine flooding that uh, would be like slosh. One note on, on slosh, that it is one that has a wide use by local jurisdictions uh, both at the local level and at the state level. And so NOAA works very closely with these jurisdictions to make sure they understand how to use the inputs um, from the National Weather Service and then how they can use this in response and recovery, as well as planning. So from a visual perspective, I'm, what came to my mind is when we're watching the weather network or accurate weather or any, any weather um, station, is this kind of where they're predicting, you know, this hurricane will go in this direction? Is, it's, is that the pictorial view of that model? Uh, the, the commercial enterprises are using outputs from the National Hurricane Center or NOAA worldwide. And eight, uh, agencies, whether it be in China or Taiwan or India, um, the Philippines all have the capacity to create these models. Some are more sophisticated than others. And, uh, but they're using the outputs uh, from either NOAA's models or the National Hurricane Center models, or they're using the data that is transmitted on the physical dimensions of the storm and, and then enter their own models. So uh, what you're seeing on your television screen oftentimes is is taken directly from NOAA outputs, and then they tweak it for their use. And, uh, and if you had something like a commercial enterprise that's a 
a weather channel or something like that, um, they may also have capacity. I've never worked with them, so I don't know of their capacity to um, model dimensions like this. Okay. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Dr. John C. Pine, author of Technology and Emergency Management. We'll be right back with Dr. Pine right after these messages. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Dr. John Pine, author of Technology and Emergency Management. Uh, John, just before we went away, you were telling us, um, giving us an example of what slosh was. And I, I mentioned you had another example in your book, Aloha. Um, it's kind of got a nice name to it, but uh, what is Aloha? Well, it is a chemical uh, release, chemical dispersion model that was developed by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in collaboration with NOAA. Uh, NOAA has a, an emergency response group. Um, they're centered on the East Coast and north, off, somewhere around North Carolina somewhere, and then in Seattle, and they may have an operation on the Gulf Coast. Uh, given the number of chemical facilities in Louisiana, I was particularly interested to understand um, that the application of this particular model. And uh, it was widely, it is 
currently widely used by uh, agencies that are response agencies. It's easy to use. Um, It runs very quickly, and it takes measurements from the air. So if you have weather station, for example, you can mount that weather station near an incident or or in a location that you want to model, and uh, it gives you uh, air movement and other kinds of dynamics that would influence the dispersion of a heavy or a light uh, gas. And so what it does, it projects what's going to happen over time and space uh, and the concentrations. And within the, the model itself, it helps you understand zones that would be of danger um, to individuals, uh, mostly to people, uh, young and old. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's set for the mature adult male, but if you, you can set it up to where it's more sensitive in using, using this, and use it both in the planning as well as in the operation uh, response. Um, I will say that uh, many people, including the agencies that sponsor it, don't like using, don't like the use of it in an actual response. Um, it oftentimes, well, they uh, for planning purposes, it's used more to understand what could happen rather than trying to suggest that the model is going to actually tell you what is happening. And to a certain degree, a model can uh, tell you um, consequences. And, but it's, it's a model, and so it's, it runs very quickly, and so it's not really a consequence uh, model rather than one that can tell you more of the possibilities and the um, of what could happen. And so people that are modelers are very sensitive about how people use uh, these models, thinking that they might be consequence models. I know the U.S. government has a capacity uh, where they run uh, models, chemical dispersion models, um, for military purposes, and it is pegged as a consequence model. It's not a public domain type of um, model. Whereas ALOA is publicly released, it's used widely in the private sector as well as in the public sector, and so it gives you more of scenarios, and one needs to be cautious is that the outputs are greatly influenced by the data we put in them. So if we make an error, the model can't tell that. Uh, we just have to, through our own experience, know that uh, the dimensions of the the concentrations and the parameters of the chemical that are in there. Um, so it's it's used more to provide guidance, um, not as a proof of an actual consequence. And so there is a difference mm-hmm. in the in the modeling that is um, true. And most models uh, help us understand the vulnerability rather than the actual consequence. And maybe we have to be careful when we use models of usually a model that is can tell you more consequential oriented is going to take longer to run and it needs a more powerful computer than just a, a laptop. And a lower runs on a laptop. It's intended to be easy to use by practitioners 
Um, you don't need a chemist running it. It's helpful to have a chemist with you, an environmental chemist that can help you process what the results are. Um, and that's true with any of the models, the atmospheric and, and environmental models today, is you need a team of people that can run it, know how to run the, uh, the model on a computer, uh, whether it's a supercomputer or a laptop. And, uh, but ALOA is a great model. I loved using it. Uh, they're still adapting it, and it's still widely mm-hmm. used by emergency responders, not only in the U.S. and Canada, but worldwide. Well, okay. So uh, what are some of the operational challenges? Yeah, I know you've kind of touched on some of them, but what are some of the operational challenges or problems with using technology in emergency management? You know, and how can we address some of these challenges? Yeah. Well, um, that chapter in the book was led by John Kiefer. He's a professor at the University of New Orleans, a dear friend, and someone who I knew was very engaged um, at the local and regional level in the Gulf Coast. And so I asked him to take that chapter and revise as he saw fit. And I think he does a real nice job in, in showing that expertise uh, can be a real problem. It's like what I mentioned with ALOA. Um, not everybody is going to have uh, a broad understanding of um, environmental chemistry, nor will you have a, a keen understanding of the dynamics of how water flows and the impacts from floods or hurricanes or wind or weather. So the, not, the amount of information and expertise that one needs to deal with disasters, human and, and uh, natural, is rather amazing. And so we need to acknowledge our limitations and then have collaborators uh, with us that we can call on to coach us and to advise us and to help us see uh, the limitations. I think that collaborations um, I have found through dealing with disasters for years and years and years that having strong collaborations, whether you're in business or in a local community, is just really needed. And I have seen it over and over again where the relationships between operational agencies, emergency managers, and schools or transportation or public works um, or in the private sector where you're dealing with um, weather-related issues, having strong collaborations, people that you can call on can help overcome um, what limitations we have. Um, I think the privacy is and security are huge, and it seems to be growing uh, more and more. Um, at on the college and university level, I would say that in most cases, the the fears on the campus are in exposing their networks uh, in cybersecurity. Um, it, it's not necessarily flooding. It's not wind. It's not earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's cybersecurity, and it I suspect that's a growing and growing dimension in uh, in the private sector. Um, data quality seems to be a major issue. Uh, how can we understand what we're using in our operations and make sure that it's accurate and timely um, 
and available to use in in the whatever way that we're we're trying to do with it. It's um, I think those are some of the operational problems uh, that we have. One of the final things that John Kiefer pointed out was this notion of interoperability, and I think he was referring to communication systems, and so having a system to where it's seamless and you can communicate across jurisdictional boundaries is is pretty critical. And uh, I think any time that, whether you're in the public or private sector, you're able to plan on um, the systems, uh, we can't just assume there um, that my system will fit seamlessly into yours and having the appropriate backup that we that we need. It's interesting you mentioned uh, the colleges and the you know the data because I've heard now that um, basically uh, you know data is really greater than currency. You know, protecting yeah. <laughs> protecting your data is more important than protecting a vault. Well, well, you know, I heard one say. of the things that um, that we see more and more, and just in the past few weeks, um, there has been uh, something that I saw in doing the second edition, the concept of Internet of Things. And you have more mm-hmm. data sources in our homes and in our businesses. Uh, I've seen this over the maybe the last 25 years as uh, entities have have mounted sensors in their buildings or in the community that you're seeing more and more of this and how we use this and not be overloaded how do we protect the integrity of it is um so it's going to be a tremendous resource but it is also um going to be an issue i think it, it i saw it more recently in this 5g networks that are beginning to evolve mm-hmm. around the world and um so that was how the Internet of Things was coming into the different national papers and reading that I saw. Well, would you believe we've actually come to the end of our third segment already? <laughs> Time flies. Um, Dr. Pine, I want to thank you very much for sharing your insight uh, with us on technology and emergency management. And uh, maybe we can expect a third edition of the book. Um, at some point, absolutely. It'll <laughs> probably come quicker than, than the last. Thank you for well, the I, opportunity to talk with you and, and your listeners about the, about the book and about the, this amazing uh, use of technology in our society. Uh, I appreciate it, and I'm sure all our listeners do. So thank you very much. Um, I know you said at the beginning you, re- I guess, kind of retired. So yeah. in, in, a, in a way... Um, you're still busy. I can tell just from hearing your voice, you're still involved with things, still passionate about things, but try and enjoy your retirement too. You've uh, deserved it. So thank you very much for for joining us. Um, Again, everyone listening, if there's topics you want us to talk about, please send me an email. Or if uh, you want to talk about a, uh, one of your products or services and chat about that on the air, uh, send me a a note as well and check out uh, boastassessment.com. And in the meantime, everybody, Stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.